This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Everybody wants to know why he couldn't adjust. Adjust to what? A dream that bust? He was a clean-cut kid, but they made a killer out of him. That's what they did. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about Clean Cut Kid from 1985's Empire Burlesque is fellow Bobcat and musician Adam Putzer. Hi, Adam. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Excited to be on the show. I am very excited to have you on for for multitude of reasons. We've been talking over social media for a while, so mm-hmm. I'm you know, always happy to finally connect with somebody on the show this way. Secondly, a couple of weeks ago, I also mentioned on Twitter that I'm working on a um like a, an Excel spreadsheet of all the episodes with songs and album and guest and episode number, just sort of a reference file for me, and if I want to distribute it out to people. And it dawned on me that there were a couple of Bob albums that we, the show has not gotten to in over 100 episodes. There were three records, uh, Empire Burlesque, Knocked Out Loaded, and Modern Times. Now, that Modern Times is genuinely shocking because I love Modern Times. I can't believe it's yeah. been that long, but it had. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I, I uh... yeah, it's amazing. So I put that out there on Twitter to kind of say, hey, anybody, if there's anybody who wants to step up and do a song from any of these records... Let's get going. And and I will say, I've already clinched a booking for Modern Times. We haven't done Knocked Out Loaded yet. Somebody has to step up for Knocked Out Loaded. But <laughs> but you, you volunteered a tweet that said that you wanted to do something from Empire Burlesque because, and I quote, Empire Burlesque is Bob Dylan's best 1980s album. So before we even get into your origin of how you became a fan of Bob, whether you've seen him live, all the standard opening questions... Please defend that incredibly wrong tweet that you wrote. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, let me, <laughs> let me preface that by saying that it's not a extremely high bar to clear for me that decade. Uh, you know, I do. Oh, mercy. That, Infidels. I mean, Adam. All right. All right. All right. I love both those <laughs> records. Do not get me wrong. But here's what I'll say. I like Bob when he's a little wooly, a little wilder. I view Infidels as kind of like a come down after his, you know, Christian period. And uh, he kind of had to get back to himself a little bit, you know. So I always found that record. The songs are great. I mean, actually, there's a few that I don't love on that one. But the production, the mood is very muted, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, Empire Burlesque is kind of like Bob going for it again. Like he's coming off a record that kind of centered him, got him back in the good graces of the critics. And he's like, all right, let's go for it now. You know, I just did We Are the World and I'm ready to <laughs> jump into the, the limelight once again with this uh, insane record. <laughs> that, uh, I will say this. The production does color a lot of people's opinions on this. I think song for song, it might be the strongest one of the 80s. Most consistent, I think. You know, there are songs on Infidels like Union Sundown. I don't love that song. Uh, <laughs> Matt Simonson is out there saying, We're shaking his fist at the clouds right now You know that <laughs> Please don't kill me <laughs> <laughs> You know this is all just one man's opinion <laughs> but the, of, course, uh, of course And you know of, Oh Mercy again You know he's kind of coming off a bit of a fallow period I, You know in people's minds Knocked out loaded and down in the groove And you know he did the traveling Wilburys Which kind of again was a great recentering In my opinion for him You know kind of coming off of two unfocused records he gets together with a few friends and he you know kind of finds himself again to some degree but again i do find that record to be a little self-conscious as far as the mood and the tone goes i don't always think bob is like so death obsessed that you know it kind of colors all his work and i feel like time out of mind coincidentally a daniel lanois production as well kind of falls into that similar uh vein for me where almost self-consciously is trying to go for this very death-obsessed vibe, but I don't always think that that was Dylan as a whole, you know? Like, I feel he's very funny, he's very multifaceted. And I do feel like those records do sometimes uh, lack the humor that I feel like 
particularly in this song that we're going to discuss is really present here. And uh, yeah, I mean, come at me. <laughs> that, that, West. <laughs> you know, song that, for song, I do think it's strong. That is a look. That's a total. First of all, again, it's it's everybody's just opinion. So I mean, what you know, or it's all in good fun here. I totally can see where you're coming from. That it's like if you like Crazy Bob, you know, you mm-hmm. like Bob who's just kind of shooting in all directions and not really worrying about whether it kind of works necessarily. Mm-hmm. I could see why Empire Burlesque would do it for you more than, as you're saying, Infidels, which is kind of controlled in its own way, and certainly Oh Mercy. Is very yes. controlled. So I, I totally see what you're, what you're talking about. And we, you know, we've covered songs from this record before. I straight up admit that like, this is not one of my favorite records. It's not because the songs are not great. I think the songs are great. And I think there are some bona fide classics there, but then there are songs that I'm just like, Oh, I wish he had just not taken that version of it or something like that kind of thing. So I agree. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I totally understand agree. what you're saying. And I agree about this song in particular. It is very funny. For as dark yes. as subject matter that it is, it is Bob being funny and weird in only a way that Bob Dylan kind of is. Yeah, so what, I totally you, get have you. Have you ever run into a watermelon stand in your life? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I mean, Bob may be thinking of something from his childhood that the rest of us that are a lot younger are like, what the hell's a watermelon stand? Like, all right, like a lemonade I stand. Sure. Watermelon. That's what okay. I was thinking that too. I'm like, me, I think he was going for the syllables there. But, yeah, I think, know, so. I think it, so. It works. Yeah, it totally, it totally does. So, okay. So, Ira, I can't wait to talk about Clean Cut did with you, but said we have to, you know, start at the beginning. How did you become a fan of Bob in the first place? I think it started just from a very, early age my father is a big music fan he had a lot of like the core dylan records he had free will in the 60s trilogy uh blood on the tracks so it was always kind of in the background growing up i admit i wasn't a huge fan until my teenage years that's when my father started really getting into it he uh went back and bought all of them so yeah around the time of love and theft was when uh i really started to fall in love with dylan uh, I really fell in love with Blood on the Tracks and Nashville Skyline of all records first. I think just because Nashville Skyline is particularly commercial and accessible and his voice isn't quite as abrasive on that one. And then uh, the first one I bought for myself was Modern Times because I was riding that high and I really wanted to get, you know, on board with the new Dylan album. You know, it was really exciting. You know, a new Dylan album. Yeah. Like my hate, you know, and I ended up I liked it, but. I think that one has fallen off a little bit for me in recent years of all his recent records. That's not my favorite one anymore. But, and then I started my own band. We were called the Tins and uh, we were touring and I loaded up my iPod with every kind of music known to humanity. And, uh, you know, I just spent endless hours in a van listening to my iPod loaded up like 128 gigabytes. And a lot (laughs) of it was Dylan. So that's where, you know, I discovered Street Legal, which is top five dylan for me yes (laughs) yes you know i love the crazy dylan you know give me divorced energy dylan any day (laughs) you know (laughs) so you know over time i really dove into everything discovered the bootleg series and uh yeah ever since just obsessed with dylan i cannot lie (laughs) were the other members of the band any of them into into bob they were to a you know a more shallow degree than i was i Mm -hmm. think uh I, one of my bandmates really did love him, but he didn't want to like listen to it all the time like sure. I was tending to do. And the other one just didn't really care about music at all, which is strange when you're a musician. But you know, interesting <laughs> approach to yeah, take. Sure, yeah, okay. he's an interesting fellow. <laughs> and uh, okay. you know, so we would. The one thing I will say is when Modern Times came out, we listened to it together, and they couldn't get past the voice, which you mm. know, I I'm like, that's the beauty of it is his voice still is like. I think it's magnificent on his later voice is magnificent to me. I don't know. I just, I love it. It still hits all the notes. It's just feels aged. He sounded that way for about 30 years. now. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, I just, I love him. And the other guys were all right with dealing with it at times, but you know, they lived with it and I had my earphones. So it was all good. There you go. Did you ever try and cover a Bob song in concert? I do on my own. Now we never really, I think we, my band actually did a version of Shelter from the Storm. It's on Spotify. If you search the tins, you will hear our version of Shelter from the Storm. And Ooh, I do very sing cool. It. And that was a hard song to sing because it got 10 verses <laughs> with, <laughs> <a lot of laughs> with a lot of imagery. That's very strange. And, you know, his melody, 
you know, Dylan's phrasing is very hard to mimic. So you kind of have to straighten it a little bit to get to a point where a normal brain can understand it. Now, what does that mean? Straighten it. What does that mean? Well, because Dylan phrasing wise tends to, you know, he really fits his, he picks his phrasing very carefully. And there are times when he's like, but he's also like flying off the cuff. I can't really like explain it. It seems somehow both practiced and improvised at the same time. Mm. So there are ways where he'll sing a line that doesn't, would never come naturally to you or me. (laughs) So when I'm trying to do this song, I'm sitting there like looking at these lines, (laughs) like, and I'm trying to listen to the line and then sing it back. And I'm like, I can't do this. Like, like, (laughs) (laughs) this is messing me up. So we got to, we got to, you know, straighten this out a little bit. So, you know, I kind of like found the, the basic melody in there and then just kind of like I keep saying, straighten it out a little bit, made it more accessible for me to be able to sing. Obviously it lacks some of that character because I'll tell you if you don't mind a funny story for a of second course. about it. So we, the reason we recorded that song was uh, we had a, a possible licensing opportunity at the time for a CBS sitcom that they never told us what it was, but I think it was, if you remember the show life in pieces, Vaguely. I I remember its existence. I never saw it. I, I do remember I. it existing. Yeah. <laughs> Neither did I, but uh we were offered an opportunity to uh do a cover of that song as like a licensing opportunity. Like we cover it and get paid for doing the version and it would be wow. on the show. Which we'd had done a couple of those for other shows with original music, but uh so we did our version, which we thought turned out okay. You know, it's in tune <laughs> and it was recorded well. And then we got an email back like a week later that's like, yeah, that's great, but we're just going to pay for the Dylan version. (laughs) 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 And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like half upset, half like, you're CBS. You, why did you do this? You have billions of dollars. You could have just done this from the start. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of a compliment, you know, in its own way. I mean, aside from the opportunity. Yeah, just to have the opportunity was nice, but then you know how upset could I be? They wanted Bob Dylan. <laughs> you know, yeah, no seriously. I, I mean, you're right. You, you've been, you, you were outpicked to Bob Dylan. Oh, how will I ever yeah. recover my ego? <laughs> That's amazing, you know, though. That's really cool. Yeah, it was a cool thing to be a part of at the very least, and you know, it was fun to record. I have to admit, so that was cool. Well, that is really neat. That is really, yeah. really neat. I. I have, you know, I've said on a bunch of shows to this point, like, I'm so impressed that we know now that he's got the lyric sheets in front of him and stuff. Mm-hmm. But just the fact that uh, he can remember all of these words, even if you even if he needs this, the, the lyrics in front of him for like half of it, even half oh, of yeah. it is amazing. You know, oh, <laughs> you yeah. Think about it. Oh, it's yeah. Absolutely amazing. And you have to keep in mind, he's also playing instruments, you know, whether it's keyboard or guitar. So your mind is in, you know, at least two different places while also trying to read your lyrics. And it's like, you know, your mind might come off. Like I know with me, I have lyrics on stage with me sometimes for songs I'm just learning or had just written and trying to look down and remember what you're doing in the middle of it becomes kind of like a really hard task. (laughs) Meanwhile, in front of several thousand people and leading the band. All that stuff. Oh yeah. So. Oh yeah. Wow. That's really cool. So, so have you have you ever seen Bob live? I have seen him once. He came to my college, Binghamton University, in two thousand and four. Uh, I was able to get student discount tickets, and they had just built a new events center that uh, they had a Division one basketball team at the moment, and they were trying to build up that team to become like a national power or something. So they invested all this money in this new basketball arena and a lot of big bands were coming through and shockingly dylan came up on the docket and i was like oh i gotta go (laughs) and uh so this was 2004 and i looked up the set list so he's touring technically love and theft but he opens with down down along the cove and uh, (laughs) and god knows (laughs) the hits (laughs) and this is like before I'm really like a huge Dylan head <laughs> and I was in deep water. So I was mm-hmm. like, I have no idea what's happening right now. <laughs> I think about song six or seven. He finally got to highway 61 revisited. <laughs> and I was like, yes, here we go. <laughs> now we're where I need to be. <laughs> That's cool. Did you, was it a good show? It was a great show. I think I was a little too young to appreciate how good it was, but I actually found video of that performance 
he did Po' Boy during that show, and there is a video online of from that show. Oh, wow, actually, cool. sounded great. He's on the keyboards. That was around the time he had stopped playing guitar live for an extended period. So when the stage opened up, you know, the lights came up, <laughs> and everybody's looking. Where is where the hell is Bob? <laughs> <laughs> He's like stage right, like in the corner. <laughs> this little five foot seven guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I had pretty good standing position. I was about 15 feet back, so I could, I would be able to make him out. And I had to like really like almost turn like a 90 degree angle to finally be able to, <laughs> to make him out. I'm like, wow, either he really doesn't want to be here or he is shyer than I expected him to be on this show. But like, you know, his band is center stage and he is way off. I'm like, oh, all right. Bob doing his thing, I guess. Yeah. That's always what it is. Bob just doing his thing. <laughs> That's cool. So I mean, glad I'm glad you enjoyed it. Would you want to go back again? I don't, uh, you know, like you. Oh, I would love to. I would love to see him again. It's just the opportunities haven't, you know, been there. Right. I've been right. a, you know, I was doing my own music thing, touring and stuff, and life just, you know, got crazy for me. So I just never got an opportunity to do it again. But if he rolls around my area, I will definitely try to score a ticket. Cool, cool. Like I said, the Rough and Ready Ways tour is kind of continuing all the way to next year. <laughs> So, By the way, I love that album. It's so amazing. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Absolutely. It supplanted Tempest as my favorite of this later period, Dylan mm-hmm. stuff. I, I will defend Tempest too. I know that one's kind of underrated as well. Or I love Tempest. I actually oh, love thank Tempest. You. Yeah, thank you. no, thank I love you. Tempest. You know? uh, yeah. Up until yeah. the last couple of songs, I really love that record. And then it kind of gets to me at the end. <laughs> one one twelve minute song too many towards the end of the record. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough all right so all right let's let's talk about clean gut kid from empire burlesque now it was of course originally i say of course like everyone just knows this but it was originally recorded for infidels and mm-hmm. it started out and i learned this from the great book surviving in a ruthless world by terry gans which is all about recording infidels that this song started out as uh, being called the brooklyn anthem it's kind of an interesting title, and at some point it morphed into Clean Cut Kid. And so he did it for Infidels, and they did a couple of takes of it. He left it behind, and then it got covered by uh, someone else. And then I guess maybe that you know it got Bob's attention again, even reminded about it. And so he then did it for Empire Burlesque, and of course it made it made that record. And it's kind of funny because with the subject matter of this song, to me, it would fit better to me on infidels than it does on empire burlesque except for the fact that of all to me of all the songs on empire burlesque the title of that record to me clean cut kid fits best with a record called that because to me empire burlesque conjures a show something absurd maybe and it's mm-hmm. combined with the word empire. So you're like, okay, well, like the American empire, you know, the the homely Roman empire, like these vast government entities, but it's a burlesque. The whole thing's kind of a joke. And so to me, when you when I hear a, song, a record with that title, I'm expecting like nine or ten political songs. And that's that record really isn't that much at all, <laughs> except for Clean Cut Kids. And to me, it's like, okay. <laughs> I see why it's like to me, it would have fit on infidels. We all know why, you know, that record had, he had so many songs, so many awesome songs for that record. He couldn't fit them all in and he managed to drop most of them. So it makes its way to Empire <laughs> burlesque. If I, if I'm making any sense at all. No, you're absolutely making sense. Uh, I completely agree. That's actually a great point. I hadn't thought of. I was thinking about why it didn't make infidels and listening to license to kill lyrically mm-hmm. kind of similar, especially the word kill killer and queen cut kid and license to kill obviously maybe he just didn't want to reuse similar imagery i don't know if he's like that you know kind of like two 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 similar songs i guess Uh, yeah it's got the line license to kill has he's hell-bent for destruction he's afraid and confused which totally could be a line in clean cut kid oh absolutely but yeah you know you do make a really good point because this song is basically how the american dream is an absolute joke and bob delivers it like you know he's known it's a joke all along and he can only kind of laugh bemusedly at how this keeps happening that in his performance i think that you know he's just such so arch in his delivery 
Like, the whole thing is just a joke to him at this point. He's seen this for 20-something years, his whole life, basically. And, you know, it's just a cycle that keeps repeating itself over and over again. The clean-cut kid. I, I love the name is great. Clean-cut kid. is The the alliteration of it is great. The mm-hmm. ka-ka-ka sound. You know, I, Brooklyn Anthem is an interesting title, but clean-cut kid just kind of is more fun to say. I think it's probably more fun to to sing and you know the, the one of the things i like about the song is well, actually one of my favorite songs on empire burlesque is that you talk about that it is very funny in its kind of mordant dark humor kind of way and we'll get through that as we'll get to stuff like that as we go through the the lyrics even though especially on the um the empire burlesque take to me the vocal is kind of removed to me it's sort of purposely kind of flat uh on the empire burlesque version the vocal take but his sympathy for his subject, which of course is the guy is never named, but his sympathy for the subject to me is very palpable. You know, the idea that there was this mass generation, or maybe if, if you want to extend it out, multiple generations of people, Americans, American boys sent to war on a, you know, and, and promised something that their country was never going to deliver. And so to yes. me, even though the song is very funny, it still has that humanistic streak that I think is in the best of Bob's work. And that's what keeps the song from being just a kind of sarcastic, you know, like just a, just a, a, an exercise in sarcasm, I should say, because I think that wouldn't age real well. I think you would just kind of get like, all right, I get it. You know, Bob Dylan from his lofty perch is kind of sneering at, the American dream and stuff like that, which by the way, has been quite good to Bob Dylan. The American dream has <laughs> like, worked out really quite well for Bob, <laughs> but, it, but I do feel like you, even though you never know the details of this kid's life, you do have sympathy for him and that he is just such a victim of forces. He can't understand. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, we're all kind of exposed to that same thing. So we can all definitely sympathize, you know, we're inundated by, you know, ads for Burger Kings, which by the way, <laughs> When he says he ate Burger Kings, he was well-fed. the funniest thing I've ever heard. I love that Bob does not know how fast food works. <laughs> right? Because he says Burger Kings multiple. It's like Burger Kings is not a thing. He ate Burger King. <laughs> he ate McDonald's. And then he did it again in uh, I Contain Multitudes where he says, I eat fast foods. That, you don't say it like that. He says, you eat fast food. Like, why? You Bob, why this guy- weird, Bob? Who's always on the road might understand how the, the nature of fast food would work, but I guess yeah. not. <laughs> but that, but that's yeah. kind of what you're talking about. It's just weird, Bob. You know, just yeah. saying things in a way nobody would say. And I don't know how he is on the road. Maybe he. I mean, he's certainly wealthy enough to not eat fast food. But you know, I imagine somewhere along the way he'd have had to dive into something. But who knows? <laughs> but I, I do agree with your point that. Uh, yeah, there is a lot of sympathy here, and I think there always will be with Dylan because despite his known sarcastic streak, you know, there always has been a humanistic streak with him as well. And, you know, he also lived this stuff, too. I mean, he's exposed to as much of this stuff as the clean cut kid would be. He just got lucky. You know, he had talent. He got out. The clean cut kid does not get out. The clean cut kid, you know, they made a killer out of him. And Bob. You know, he, I bet he does have a, a decent amount of sympathy for it. I just think that, like you said, the delivery is very strange on this one, you know, very, very flat, but kind of sarcastic, but you can make out the heart through the, through it all. Totally. Totally. And it is it, not to get too grand with it, but in its own weird way, it trip hammers through American history, especially American history of, as you just talked about, Bob's life, forties, fifties. 60s into the set you know kind of similar to murder most foul obviously murder most fouls it's got its own concerns and it's a much yeah. more epic manner but it's the same idea of bob going through and rolling through history and it's all this sort of big jumble and so i mean the song goes on where he says you know they say what what's up is down they say what isn't is they put ideas in his head that he thought were his again that could be a line in license to kill and vice versa and then oh, yeah. he was a clean-cut kid he was on the baseball team. He was in a marching band. When he was 10 years old, he had a watermelon stand. Again, the watermelon stand. What neighborhood are you living in, Bob? Kids have water- what am, I, am I buying an entire watermelon for five cents? Like, what's happening? Um, but he went to the, he went to church on Sunday. He was a Boy Scout from his friends. He would turn his pockets inside out, which is not in the Empire Burlesque version, by the way. So they've changed the words a little bit around here on BobDylan.com. But just those things right there in a ba- on the baseball team. 
in a marching band. He had, you know, a lemonade slash whatever, you know, stand like kids do. He was a Boy Scout. I mean, that is every kid from Eisenhower's America. Every single kid. That's what America sold, sells itself to be. And here's Bob using all that iconography to paint, you know, interspersed with the chorus, which is they turned him into a killer. Oh, yeah. And it's interesting because I, is this like the first Dylan song that directly addresses Vietnam in some way with the Napalm Health Spa? I mean, it all depends on your point of view. I mean, in Tombstone Blues, he talks about uh, being uh, people being sent out to the jungle. And that's in 1965. So I guess if you yeah, want that's... to, you could say that's what he's he's talking about Vietnam War there. But he doesn't doesn't actually say the word. He doesn't say it here. But yeah, Napalm Health Spa certainly suggests what you know, what we're talking about. And you have to realize this is when he's recording this, right? He writes this in 1982, three, mm-hmm. and then works on it for Empire Burlesque. The idea of our our, our especially our, our Vietnam veterans having come home and suffering neglect and all the things they suffered after coming home is very much in the popular consciousness at that time. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. You know, you've got obviously born in the USA is, you know, a year before this version comes out, uh, the Rambo movies, you know, depending on your point of view, (laughs) the first one, uh, the first first one is genuinely, you know, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's definitely in the culture and it, you know, I wasn't alive for that, but it seems like around that time, you know, the the reckoning with it had just kind of come up or people were trying to reckon with every the fallout of that, you know, like about 10 years down the line, you know, where are we and what have, what's happened to these people? You know, it, it doesn't paint a pretty picture in any of that stuff. You know, Born in the yeah. USA is like one of the angriest songs you'll ever hear, not anthemic like Reagan thought. So yeah. <laughs> and it's it's interesting to compare that song to Clean Cut Kid because you know he's so angry on that song and Bob kind of is taking again I, I the humanistic elements are there but it's almost like kind of to quote the man himself on the earlier song on uh, Empire Burlesque uh, tight connection to my heart what did you expect <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it, this is a cycle that has been playing out through most of modern American history and it continues to play out and he's now he's a corporate killer by the end of the song basically you know so reaganomics has come into play as well so even even so he got out of came through all that and who knows what kind of person he is by the end of this he constantly refers to they in the song he never says who the they you know they say listen boy you're just a pup they sent into a napalm health spot to shape up. They say, congratulations. You get, they gave him dope to smoke, drinks and pills, a Jeep to drive, blood to spill. They're between napalm and a Jeep, what else could we be talking about? And then they said, congratulations. You got what it takes. They sent him back into the rat race without any breaks. He took a clean cut kit. You know, again, it's all of that. It, it, there's, there's no way it's anything but this kind of, I mean, again, you can apply your own meanings to it, but I think Bob is making his meaning clear here. You know, about yes. what he's what he's seeing from and you're right. It's it's so funny that Bob and Bruce Springsteen, we know obviously good friends, and one of them has influenced the other, probably back and forth. But it is very funny to me how much they will often have songs that are very parallel to one another, and they're clearly working on them at around the same time. Because <laughs> I you know, you've got Born in the USA and then you've got Clean Cut Kid, and then like during Under the Red Sky. Bob had TV talking song and almost the exact same time Bruce Sting, Bruce Springsteen put out 57 channels, which That's is virtually the true. same songs. <laughs> These guys are like in each other's ether somehow. It's amazing. And I believe that uh, Springsteen heard series of dreams and that's when it inspired him to make those uh, two records in the early nineties right there. Oh, I never Something heard about that. that song. Yeah. I believe he heard that song and I, he must've been inspired in some way to make human touch and the uh, lucky town, which you know, not his finest hours, but, <laughs> but interesting. That's you know? really cool, though. That's what I've never heard that ground. detail. That's fantastic. You know? Yeah, but you do make a good point. And, you know, it's interesting, the Springsteen stuff, because um, I always felt like Dylan was friendly with him, but always a bit wary of him, which I know it's not about this song, but like when the night comes falling from the sky and the original version was done with the E Street Band or members of. Yes, I love that version so much. <laughs> it's so good. 
But part of me wonders if he was a little wary of using like the Springsteen thing. Like, I don't really, you know, I love Bruce, but it's not really my thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's pair it back a little bit. Of course, he made like the, in my opinion, the most insane song he ever recorded. <laughs> the, the, you talk about when the, the uh, night. The, yeah, when the night comes falling from the sky, when he did it for uh, Empire Burlesque, oh, the, uh, I, the I full hate, version. I, I hate that version so much. I'm sorry. I just, oh my God. I find I, that one I respect almost unlistenable. The, uh, it's so, oh. I respect the audacity of it, but, you know, I, it, and then Tweeter and the Monkey Man, obviously, you know, is yeah, kind right. of a little, well, then he's a straight little up parodying. Bruce, but, you know, yeah. I always felt there was a little wariness there on Bob's part, like to, you know, I like the kid, but, Maybe he's too sincere for my liking. It's interesting. I, I never <laughs> thought of it that way. I mean, not to get too far down the Bruce Springsteen road, but um, yeah. it's funny you say about Bob trying to kind of almost do a Springsteen song. And then I think, but one of my favorite covers of any Bob song is when Bruce did a live cover of Chimes of Freedom or oh, yeah. the Am Scenery, and he kind of turns it into a Springsteen song. Like it's yeah. you know, on on another side, it's this kind of slow sort of thing and then when bruce gets it it becomes bruce springsteen's chimes of freedom so yeah um you know anything that bruce touches becomes a bruce thing you know it does. always gets subsumed into that sound but i mean it speaks to the malleability of dylan too like his mm-hmm. work is just you know we he doesn't get enough credit as a melody writer in my opinion like his work just works in so many mediums you know different styles of music it, it's unfathomable to me how it translates mm-hmm. across all those different uh genres and everything yeah absolutely um so the song continues he says he bought the american dream but it put him in debt the only game he could play was russian roulette so we all know that bob is a big uh movie guy you know mm-hmm. big movie guy he he pulls lines from movies in fact empire burlesque in particular has lines in various songs pulled from movies there's a line from uh, the Maltese Falcon. There's a line from a Star yes. Trek episode. I mean, he was, you know, <laughs> so you're getting the sense of Bob just sort of watching TV, watching movies and just sort of letting these lines, you know, pop up in his head. And the line about the only game he could play was Russian roulette makes me think of the deer hunter of because course, yeah. there's a big scene in the deer hunter about returning Vietnam war veterans where they're playing Russian roulette. And I just, mm-hmm. now obviously, you know, the phrase Russian roulette has a greater meaning in the culture now it's it's come to mean just taking any sort of insane risk that you're you know for no good reason but nevertheless when i see that i can't help but think okay and then i just start thinking about all the different like we were just talking about like all the stuff in the culture about returning veterans or things like that and how much bob is probably soaking all that in you know where it's coming home maybe with john voight and jane fonda that had only come out a couple of years earlier all the stuff um for some reason, the um, the the book "Johnny Got His Gun" by Dalton Trumbo mm-hmm. popped up in my head because that he wrote that in it's uh, he wrote that in 1938 and it was you know, 38 and yet it was made into a film in 1971. It's the only film Dalton Trumbo ever directed. Wrote a lot of movies. Wrote a lot of movies on the sly because he was part of the uh, blacklist. And I always wondered if there was any quotes about Bob versus and Dalton Trumbo. And I, I couldn't find any, but I found a bunch of reviews of Johnny Got His Gun where by people who have read it. And they said that the last chapter of that book is clearly the inspiration for Masters of War by Bob, you know, by Bob Dylan. Oh, and I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know what that means because I haven't read the book and I haven't seen the movie, <laughs> but I'd love to know what that means. Like, you know, and it would make sense to me that Bob himself would be inspired by somebody as famous as Trumbo who suffered for his art. Trumbo oh. got suffered politically for his views, the kind of views that Bob could espouse just a couple of years later with relative security that he was not going to have his his livelihood taken away from him by the In government. In fact, he'd probably be praised for doing yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a very interesting point. You know, I have not seen Johnny Got His Gun, but I do know Dylan's obsession with film and definitely that Russian roulette line. Uh, Deer Hunter, Christopher Walken scene would definitely play into that. I also think the sound of the song itself seems to stem like musically, like it almost sounds like advertisement music of the mid eighties. You know what I mean? Like kind of hmm. like Eric Clapton beer commercial style. <laughs> you no, know, this, this like bluesy guitar, you know, Ronnie Woods all over it, you know, doing this thing. 
And it's got that, like those real harsh drums. It sounds like a night out song, almost like night out at the bar with the boys, you know, hanging out. <laughs> Everybody's down in Coors Light. <laughs> you know? Budweiser brings you clean cut kid. <laughs> Drink some Coca-Cola, eat some to... Wonder Bread, eat some Burger Kings. Yeah. And, you okay. know, it reminds me of that Neil Young song, this song, This Notes for You. Right, right, right. He kind of, where he's more self-consciously, you know, taking you know advertisers to task about the whole thing but in a way i i don't know if it was a conscious decision or not but in in a very strange way it kind of highlights that point that you know talking about burger kings and coca-colas and all of that and this like very jaunty kind of very commercial sound and then he's just completely taking them to task throughout the whole thing (laughs) (laughs) well okay that's a perfect time to ask you what do you think of the infidels versions versus the Empire Burlesque version. Because the Empire Burlesque version, as you say, is much more kind of bright sounding and it does sound a little jingly in its own way. And it's obviously got that kind of juke joint sound and you've got the Queens of Rhythm going no in the background versus mm-hmm. the Infidels version, which is they, it sounds like an Infidel version. What's, do, do you like, is there one version you like more than the other? You know, I don't really know because the Infidels version definitely fits that record better and it sounds more like Chuck Berry-ish, almost like kind of a travelogue song, but taken mm-hmm. at a bit of a slower pace. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got that kind of rhythmic, you know, movement to it. Uh, and it's cleaner, and it definitely makes the song sadder, in my opinion. But there is a part of me that does enjoy, like, you know, this kind of, like, you know, Dylan kind of ja- being jaunty, kind of like, you know, taking you to task while smiling in your face kind of thing you know <laughs> you're enjoying this Smiling you're enjoying this everybody stabbing you in the back kind of thing mm-hmm. you know which is always a mode that i enjoy dylan in <laughs> so you know i did i do think oddly enough this is the best version of this song and there is another take of this on that springtime in new york box set that just came out mm-hmm. a year or two ago and that one sounds very similar but it's more like honky-tonk piano based and I prefer this one to that. That one's got Ben Montench doing the kind of boogie woogie stuff all over it. And uh, it's funnier in a way, but I kind of like the uh, the Ronnie Wood just like improvising for a take. That's how right. I picture it. <laughs> <laughs> um, l- lyrically, the versions are generally the same. There's the you know, there, there really isn't any a lot of wholesale changes and just some minor language changes across both versions is the reference to Peter O'Toole which is just sort of a funny head scratching, like what? Like Peter, (laughs) like no offense to Peter O'Toole, one of the great actors ever to do it in Hollywood, but like 1985, like was he the name you would drop to represent Hollywood in 1985? Like, no. And, and also the fact that, you know, for the song about how terrible American culture is, he's like, british <laughs> i don't yeah. understand you know the example of pulling him into it yeah it's about 20 years past his prime unless he's thinking like lawrence of arabia i don't really know like what he would be going for there i mean Very Peter tool did have like a little bit of a career resurgence in the 80s he was in my favorite year where he was nominated for an That's, oscar that is a great movie uh yes. yeah it is a terrific movie and and he was in other films uh, he worked consistently all the way up until till he passed away just like not that long ago. But it is just like a very strange, like, what? Like, it just what a weird. And I almost <laughs> think it is just for the rhyme, just so he can rhyme it with. He stole a Rolls Royce and drove it in a swimming pool because and, you it's, know, you're just like Peter. Yeah. Like, what? Uh, yeah. And it's strange like that. The all American kid. I don't know if he would be going to see a Peter O'Toole movie necessarily. You know, is right. Right. His material is kind of elevated at most times so it, it yeah right like... yeah yeah is the clean-cut <laughs> kid going to see supergirl i don't probably not i'm probably gonna go see i mean he get you know he went to hollywood to see sylvester stallone you could kind of work out fits. the syllables of that you know that would work out it reminds me a little of that song bob did on with with tom petty and the heartbreakers on their record the jam and me song oh yeah I like which that he song. co-wrote which again features just bizarre out of left field 
celebrity references because that song mentions Vanessa Redgrave and Joe Piscopo. You're like, I was going to say that's the what? Joe Piscopo song, right? <laughs> what? You know? And you just feel you like know, Bob's just watching TV and names just pop on his screen and he just jots them down. You know, he's like, okay, you know? okay. You know. Hey, the guy's always taking stuff in. I have to give him credit. If I saw Joe Piscopo on my TV, I'd probably just change the channel. The man's <laughs> so. a sponge. You know, the man is a sponge. He really um, is. Yeah. So he says he could have sold, sold insurance, owned a restaurant or bar. He couldn't have been been an accountant or a tennis star he wears wearing boxing gloves he took a dive one day off the golden gate bridge into china bay i love the like sort of inversion of wearing boxing gloves and taking a dive which has one meaning in the context of boxing and then it turns literal into the golden gate bridge into china bay which is so funny when he says he took a dive off the golden gate bridge into china bay that sounds like suicide it sounds like you know the guy is but that's you know, so you would imagine, well, is that the end of the song? Well, no, you know, I guess because it kind of continues on with the refrain. So it's like, well, you know, is, did the clean cut kid die at this point or it's not meant to be taken so literally as a story song? Yeah. And the next lines, his mama walks the floor, his daddy weeps and moans. That would definitely play into that theory that, you know, he's probably, Dead you know, killed himself. And a common tale for a lot of, uh, sadly, you know, a lot of this stuff going on around that time. And it's also interesting, the previous lines, that he could have sold insurance, owned a restaurant or bar, you know, as aspirational, you know, like happier endings for this guy. And Bob's definitely softened on that in that regard, because if you think back to subterranean, subterranean homesick blues, he's talking about, you know, 20 years of school and then they put you on the day shift as it's mm-hmm. like as if it's a nightmare you know as mm-hmm. if that's you know all you get for all this hard work and they you know you get screwed over anyway but now it's kind of like you know that's certainly preferable to have been sent off to some jungle to you know die or get messed up you know mentally yeah i mean that that could be the kind of thing that uh you gain that perspective from being 20 years older and that it could be that by the time 1985 rolls around and Bob's been a professional musician for many decades and there are some, you know, many upsides, but also some down ones, he probably finds, you know, well, no, you know what, it, maybe just uh, owning a restaurant or being an accountant. There's nothing wrong with that. I know I don't when when I was when he's 24, he's sneering at it maybe a little bit because you're when you're in your 20s, you do that. But when he's older, he's like, no, this guy could have led a nice normal life one of happiness and he could have done anything but instead this is what the system has taken to him. i do love this mama walks the floor his daddy weeps and moans they got to sleep together in a home they don't own uh and Very then relevant the, stuff. um yeah yeah and then on the end in the um the infidels version he, he changes a little where it says his daddy weeps and cries his mama feels betrayed they got to sleep together in a bed they never made which is the same basic idea but i i like both those versions out of just the idea that these people are maybe in debt, you know, that they're, they're not in control of their own destiny. I mean, they've obviously they've lost their son to this, to, to, to whatever's happened to him. So I just think that's a great either version, I think, works just great. I love it. I, and in, in, in some ways, I kind of wish the song ended there. It keeps going a bit yes. longer. I don't know if it really needs to, but I, I think that verse is terrific. And, you know, it's interesting because uh this whole kind of uh, taking down the American dream thing, you know, their son has given his life to this cause, you know, in the name of America. And what are they left with at the end? Nothing. They don't yeah. own their home. Their son is most likely dead. And, you know, the American dream is really just continues to destroy everybody's lives. <laughs> Weird in a, in that way, you know, it's, I hate to say it's like a fun song because it, you know, it isn't, but as you, as you were saying, like it does have that streak of Bob sarcasm and humor to it that makes it fun to listen to and kind of sing along to, even though in some ways it's similar to Born in the USA. Born in the USA is a great sing along song. And then you realize, God, this is a dark, dark song, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> but the performance oh, yeah. <laughs> of it is so exhilarating that you get caught up in it, even though you're like, Oh my Lord. So yeah, everyone was full. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and so, so live wise, uh, it's only been done 68 times between 85 and 1990. And that's it. Uh, basically not really not done it since again. It's one of the songs that would be, I really fun to hear him pull that out of. I don't even know the last time he did an empire burlesque song. 
live. He doesn't. He doesn't seem Not to much. love this record. I was reading back in the uh, Down the Highway biography, and he really just wrote it off after it was done. They they said he was, you know, during the mixing sessions, he would just get bored and go see a movie, which is very, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, I've pictured that recording session being he did. They list him as producer and Arthur Baker as Arthur the Baker, mixer. Yeah. And uh, I picture Dylan doing all the songs in his usual fashion, running them live a couple of times and then sitting there and watching Arthur Baker turning the knobs, adding everything else <laughs> on top of it. And this taking weeks and weeks and Bob saying, I have had enough of this. <laughs> I got to get out of here. <laughs> I, I, I know that there are some examples where this has worked quite well, but the whole notion of what we know about how Bob records, right? Where he wants to have everything being done at the same time to give it that live feeling Mm -hmm. the whole idea that you could record you know a whole bunch of songs right bob dylan songs and then after the fact hand them over to somebody to like remix them and add things just seems antithetical to to his whole approach now again i know there's been we all that we you know thanks to the fragment set we know that daniel lenoir did something kind of similar to that and Mm -hmm. and that worked you know, that certainly worked, but it just feels so strange to me of just what we know of how Bob is willing to deal with, you know, errors, you know, on a recording, like uh, the buttons of his coat rapping against the guitar or whatever, or he flubs a line. That's okay because he got to the heart of the performance. That's the most important thing. And that is because him and the band are there and they're, they're sharing this moment together and they're creating something in that moment that maybe is worth keeping on the record. So it just feels so weird to me, so distant to just be like, okay, here, Arthur, do something with this. It just feels it just like, really? Yeah. That's how this works? You know, it speaks kind of like to the, his whole 80s run post Infidels to me that like, it seems like, I mean, it's obvious to most people, he didn't really have a handle on what he wanted to do. I feel like he lacked kind of a center, a centering presence to kind of tell him, all right, I'm giving you the environment you need to work and do what you do best. You look at when of the time right 1985 and you think Mm -hmm. about the legends of rock and roll at that time the rolling stones or paul simon or or bob or you know paul mccartney or whoever mccartney the rolling stones yeah a very confused time for all of that right exactly you look at that and you say well at that point the general populace didn't know how to treat these people right were they oldies acts that didn't know when to leave the stage were they still vital artists? Were they, you know, and then you, you could argue if you're a very casual Bob Dylan fan and you hear Empire Burlesque, you're like, ah, oh, what, what happened to this guy? You know what I mean? You know, again, it's yeah. not, not like Bobcats like us that dig deep, but if, if you're just hearing some random stuff, you're just kind of like, uh, oh, you know, I'd rather go listen to this Prince record, you know, versus this guy that's been around a long time. We now enough time has passed that we now regard all these people as well, they are eternal. You know, these, these are eternal. Yeah. Maybe they had their rough period creatively, but these are eternal talents worthy of respect and younger artists are very open in their, you know, how much they love Paul McCartney, how much they love the Rolling Stones, how much they love Bob Dylan. But in like, in that time, it's still like record labels are kind of like, ah, this guy's not selling records the way he used to be. So we're going to keep kind of treat him sort of shittily. And you're like, yeah. what are you talking about? It's Bob Dylan. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But they didn't know that then because it was still like, is it over for these people? Yeah, you know, do I, they have more to go? You know, and we have the, the, you know, we have hindsight to tell us that how this thing was going to play out. But from the sixties right. on their pop music is just being born around the time of the Beatles and Dylan, as mm-hmm. we know it, that's the birth of modern pop. So all this stuff is things we're learning on the fly here. And MTV comes along and totally flips everything on its head. You know, mm-hmm. they kind of, you know, throughout the 60s and 70s, these guys were riding high that, you know, they got past the, you know, flash of the pan stage and it looked like they were established artists for the, the rest of, I mean, obviously they were, but MTV comes along, changes the game. And you look at a guy like Bob Dylan, it's like, what the hell do I do? <laughs> and he's making these weird ass <laughs> videos. You know, oh, that, tight, making... that tight connection to my heart video is an all timer. <laughs> oh, it is. It absolutely is. Um, so I can imagine, you know, trying to augment his sound with this MTV thing and making videos. It's just catching him in a really awkward place to put himself out there. And I don't know if he was, 
I think that's a big part of why he wrote this one off pretty soon after it came out. Maybe so. And this is by the by the way, as we're as we're kind of closing the conversation here on Clean Cut Kid, this is an incredibly minor detail. But one other time, what you know, what other context I'm going to bring this up, right? So if you go to BobDylan.com, right, and you go to the album section and you look at all the albums. And you, you know, you pull up any song from one of the albums and then it has the big graphic, right? Mm-hmm. Empire Burlesque is the only album of Bob's that they don't even have a clean shot of the cover. The cover they have is from the compact disc and it even has that <laughs> little imprint where it says compact disc that you saw on every compact disc in like the eighties. And it's like, wow, they don't. For Empire Burlesque, they couldn't even be bothered to go find the original like album art and just shoot that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just as much as I knock Empire Burlesque, it feels like so disrespectful to this record to kind of be like, oh yeah, just grab the CD cover, it's fine. You know, like, I mean, <laughs> you know, regardless of what people think of it, it's still a Bob Dylan record. It's a Bob Dylan <laughs> you know, album. Central to, central to his, you know, discography. Yes, <laughs> you know, it's you an all think. original Bob Dylan record. Right? You know, respect <laughs> must be paid for the love of God, guys. <laughs> yeah. um, that's a very good point. I'm looking at the image now, and they actually also use this image on the allmusic.com review, which I will mention is four and a half stars out of five. By wow. far, his highest reviewed record of the 80s. Wow, um, they were all in on Empire Burlesque, weren't they? They okay. they agree with me. <laughs> That's <Okay>. consistent. <laughs> <laughs> the songs are good. You just have to really chisel away. <laughs> oh man, I mean, look, hey, I take connection to my heart. I will. I love that song. Oh, that's a fantastic. I absolutely song. love that song. So yeah, no, there's there's some there's some great look, and there's more to be mined from this record. We, I I I invite anybody listening to this who wants to talk about some other Empire Burlesque songs, please do. I love all of Bob's <laughs> stuff. Some some more than others, but you know, come on, it all again, it all deserves some respect. By the way, I I am I am wrong in saying that um, Empire Burlesque is the only record that gets that disservice, knocked out, loaded, and down in the groove, and real live all have that little compact disc graphic, which really just feels like such a shot at his eighties output in oh, general. Yeah. You know, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, I just uh, stand up for your work, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Come on. Come on, Bob. Don't come, come on. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, come on. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> be proud. I know they're not the best, but come on. They're there. <laughs> they hey, 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 most <laughs> artists, most artists, even if they had empire burlesque in their catalog, they'd be like, that's they're pulling songs off of that to play in concert for the rest of their career. I would love you to know? have written an Empire Burlesque. Oh, man. Are you kidding? <laughs> you seeing the real you at last? Trust Yourself? I love Trust Yourself. That yeah, song there's... is fantastic. Yes. Has that been discussed yet? No, Somebody we haven't done that one about yet. That song. No one's pitched that yet. No one Somebody needs to yet. talk about that song. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, well, Adam, I think you've done a fine job defending that seemingly insane tweet that you wrote and i appreciate <laughs> well, it uh, i really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about the song i and again no sarcasm intended like every bob dylan album deserves its day in the sun so any album that goes so long without being covered on the show i'm like now nah, we got to get back in the you know back in the weeds on these records so i'm glad that empire burlesque is getting some attention uh for this episode so again thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, this is the first podcast I've ever been on. So this oh, is wow. a really uh, illuminating experience for me. I and, hope you uh, enjoyed it. I really did. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. And uh, yeah, if you ever want to talk more Dylan on Twitter or something, I will. Oh, that's sure. Absolutely. That'll be continuing. <laughs> um, so, okay. Before we wrap up, I do have to ask you our exit question, which be uh, for you as a musician, I think. Uh, is kind of even particularly very keen to ask what uh, recording session of any Bob Dylan recording session would you want to sit in on? Mm. You know, that's interesting. Uh, honestly, I would like to go back to the John Wesley Harding sessions because that album is my favorite Dylan record and I find it very mysterious. Mm-hmm. And I just love the three person band and that band is that might be my favorite backing on any Dylan record. Those just him uh, Kenny Buttry on the drums, and I forget who the bass player was on that one. That bass player is cooking the whole time, <laughs> and uh, I just I would love to be a fly in that room. And it's short too; you only be there for like 
nine hours. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you're you're definitely screwing yourself in terms of the I know, amount of time. I know, I'm thinking get. back on it. Yeah, I would love to spend more time with Dylan, but I don't know if he'd want to spend more time with me. So nine hours feels like a a fine time, fine amount of time before he'd kick me out of the room. But yeah, this <laughs> something about that record. I don't know. Not a lot. Uh, not a lot of background on that record. So I'd really like to be in there to find out about why. Uh, how that turned out the way it did, why the band isn't there and all that stuff, you know? Yeah. That's a great, that's a great answer. I, a couple of weeks ago, I, I bought John Wesley Harding on vinyl at a used oh. record store. And my, my wife and I, every time we're anywhere where there's a used record store, we pop our heads in and I pick up some things. Uh, so then like a week later, uh, it was like a really beautiful morning. The sun was out and my, uh, I, I start work an hour ahead before my wife does. So I was like, Oh, you know what? I'm just going to put John Wesley Harding on the turntable before she comes out. And not that I didn't know it already. Obviously I did, but listening to it in that context. And that I was like, Holy damn, this is a great record. Like, really you know, is. like, <laughs> wow, this is really good. It's you so, really it's, gotta- it's so itself. It's so self-contained. It you really know. is. There's nothing like it before or after. Even no. the basement tape sessions really don't indicate what's coming, you know, with no. all of that. No. And, you know, I feel I feel like that. I really connected with that record after I had just gone through some really uh, low points in my personal life. And I would just be driving at night and have that playing on the radio. And, like, I dreamed I saw St. Augustine. I just, that song hit me like a ton of bricks. That's just great. something about yeah. it. That's I, I think that's very honorable of you to pick something that would be that would get you the least amount of time in Bob's presence. But you went for the quality. You know, you didn't yes. you were like, I, you know, obviously it would be tempting to say I want the basement. tape. Not that the basement tapes aren't quality, but, you know, oh, you're yeah. getting yourself three months of hanging out with Bob. <laughs> but you're giving yourself nine hours, Adam. You know, <laughs> like, that's I know. It. But you're seeing it, you know, working fast in real time, seeing the full uh, flowering of genius in a way, you know, like wow, this guy is writing all these songs and they're getting them done that quick. I, I am, I'm in a much smaller band than he was. And it mm-hmm. t- took my band like two weeks to do an album. You know, it's like, it's, it's amazing to me. Oh yeah. Oh, my favorite story about that record is like, I think it was Ken, Ken Buttry who ran into George Harrison, not that long after it had come out and Harrison had heard it. And of course loved it. And he being a musician, knew how complex it must have been to record something so spare and simple. And he like said something to Butchery like, how long did it take you guys? That must have taken months. And Butchery was like, nah, like two days. <laughs> <laughs> and Harrison's like, what? <laughs> you know? You're like, God, this is so- coming from a guy who just did Sergeant Pepper and right, exactly. Interminable hours. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, right. They spent six months working on one record, and like Bob creates Sean Wesley Harding, and the space it takes like one work day. You know, like eight hours of work. That's all it took. So, uh, yeah, forget, yeah. And don't forget, George only had one song on that record. So oh, he's man. sitting around oh, a lot. Man, of the why time. he's sitting around a lot? <laughs> um, so, well, Adam, again, thank you so much for doing this. this. Was a really fun conversation. And why don't you tell people uh, where they can find you out on the internet? Sure. Uh, my Twitter handle is a putzer one. That's a p u t z e r one. And uh, I also have uh, Instagram and uh, TikTok. At As Alone Music, A-S-A-L-O-N-E Music. That's my solo music. And I also have a band, The Tins. They're on Spotify and everywhere you can stream, as is my solo project, As Alone. If you search us, search me for on that on Spotify and all that, that's where I'll be. Very cool. Again, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was a blast talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So, of course, everybody, you can find all the back episodes of this show over on our website, fmpods.com. If you haven't subscribed yet to Pod Dylan Plus, please do that because you will be getting all sorts of bonus content, bonus shows. Uh, you get the episodes a little early. Uh, you'll One of the other things you've probably all of you have noticed at this point, uh, the bonus for being a, a part of FM Pods now is no more ads. There's no more ads on Pod Dylan, which I'm very proud. I'm uh, very happy to, <laughs> to be saying <laughs> nobody has to sit through those horrible ads anymore. And that's because we get to be part of FM Pods. So if you haven't subscribed to pod dylan plus uh, you could support the show and the network please do go to fmpods.com and of course we're always talking bob over on twitter at pod underscore dylan so that's going to do it thanks everybody for listening and we will see you later bye 
There's a condition in combat, most people know about it, it's when a fighting person's nervous system has been stressed to its absolute peak and maximum, can't take any more input. The nervous system has either snapped or is about to snap. In the First World War, that condition was called shell shock. Simple, honest, direct language. Two syllables. Shell shock. Almost sounds like the guns themselves. That was 70 years ago. Then a whole generation went by, and the Second World War came along, and we, the very same combat condition was called battle fatigue. Four syllables now. Takes a little longer to say. Doesn't seem to hurt as much. Fatigue is a nicer word than shock. Shell shock. Battle fatigue. <laughs> then we had the war in Korea, 1950. Madison Avenue was riding high by that time. And the very same combat condition was called operational exhaustion. <laughs> hey, we're up to eight syllables now. And the humanity has been squeezed completely out of the phrase. It's totally sterile now. Operational exhaustion. Sounds like something that might happen to your car. <laughs> then, of course, came the war in Vietnam, which has only been over for about 16 or 17 years. And thanks to the lies and deceit surrounding that war, I guess it's no surprise that the very same condition was called post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> Still eight syllables, but we've added a hyphen. And the pain is completely buried under jargon. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll bet you if we'd have still been calling it shell shock, some of those Vietnam veterans might have gotten the attention they needed at the time. I'll bet you that. I'll bet you that.